Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're enjoying the show, if you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as that helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. I would like to thank Samit Shah for the introduction to today's guest, Natalie Dillon. Natalie is a principal at Maveron. Maveron is a premier consumer-focused fund that invests in C and Series A companies that empower consumers to live on their terms. Some of their investments include eBay, Everlane, and Allbirds. Prior to Maveron, Natalie was at Sousa Ventures, a premier seed stage fund in San Francisco. At Sousa, Natalie worked with a team to source and help diligence several investments, largely in the consumer space. Before Sousa, Natalie was a financial analyst at Goldman Sachs and a research associate at Silicon Valley Bank. Please note that this episode was recorded back in January before the global pandemic. I hope you all are staying safe during these such difficult times. With all that being said, it was really great chatting with Natalie about subcultures, social media, millennials, and Gen Z, and and much, much more. So without further ado, here's Natalie. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing great. Excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So... What attracted you initially to venture capital and consumer investing? You know, I, I think like many people, I draw a lot of inspiration from my parents and, and kind of the, the values that they imprinted on me. Um, my mom's a social worker. My dad's an immigration lawyer. Uh, our dinner conversations revolved around social justice, not venture capital. So can't say I was, you know, as a young kid, really kind of gunning to be a VC, but I think they, my parents served as kind of a fantastic example of lining their work with purpose. Um, and from a really, really young age, I've always wrestled with this question of, you know, how do you create meaningful impact that is authentic to yourself? And I think like many in our generation, um, we, we think about that question. And, and I experimented with a lot of kind of different things, worked in nonprofits, worked in policy, worked in government, was really interested in urban design in developing countries, worked at a big, powerful bank, and kind of where I landed in kind of these series of, uh, of experiments was that it's, it's not actually the institution or vehicle um, that, that causes change, but rather for me specifically, it's, it's one-on-one relationships that I'm able to build, um, where you can create, can create kind of real, real impact. And I think, um, venture is this kind of amazing industry where one-on-one relationships with either other investors or founders that you're partnering with, um, can have a, a huge, huge, huge ripple effect. And so to have a career that aligns kind of so perfectly well with that personal ethos was has been really special. Um, and then when it comes to consumer, you know, I think I've been someone who's just had a lifelong obsession around understanding people and trends and behavior. Um, and I think really kind of at the core of consumer investing is that that deep understanding and, and empathy for for people. Um, and you know, to play a I think a, a very very small role in in shaping. Uh, shaping some of the zeitgeist and and the values that that consumers have is is incredibly powerful and 
yeah, I, I feel so, so fortunate to, to be able to do what I do. But it kind of seems to have this, I guess, alignment of, you know, b- these building communities and, and connecting folks. You know, so we so we have talked a little bit about Mavron's due diligence process and the founder checklist that you has, but I love just to do a little bit of a refresher since for those that just haven't had the chance to listen to those episodes, a little bit about Mavron and just walk through your uh, your founder checklist if that's all right with you. So our you know founder checklist one, um, you know I think we place such heavy emphasis on it because at the end of the day. The founders absolutely central to to our decision making process. Um, they really kind of dictate the success, the outcome, the culture, even kind of the relationship that that we have for them. So um, it's incredibly important for us to have a very precise understanding of of who the founder is. And I think oftentimes you hear investors describing founders in fairly loose and generic terms, like this founder is very compelling or very strong. Um, But the checklist really allows us to drill in on on what's so special um, and have kind of both a very deep and complete understanding of of who the person is. Um, We have, you know, 10 attributes that that we look for. um, and, And they range in terms of kind of how missionary and kind of passionate they are. Um, how great of a recruiter, um, what sort of category advantage they have. Um, is there some sort of kind of unfair advantage from a data or IP or supply chain perspective? Um, how humble and, and self-aware are they able to know where their blind spots are and, and hire around? Um, can they toggle between being both you know, an incredible visionary, but also get down in the weeds and, and be detail oriented and how quickly and kind of fluent can they toggle between the two, how fast they work and how kind of quickly things can move. We look at communication skills across different mediums. So both, you know, presenting in, in person, but also in, in written. And then lastly, kind of how you creation um, for their employees, for the company and, and investors. So those are kind of a few of the, the attributes that, that we look for. And, you know, I think in our diligence process, maybe relative to, to other firms, but hard to say without, without working there, we go very deep on, on founder references. And so, you know, as an example, one of the kind of most recent core investments that I led, we did, you know, I think over 20 plus references, um, and, you know, what, what we're looking for is both kind of consistency, but also, you know, really trying to understand who this person is. If, you know, we're, we're signing up for a seven to, you know, 10 year plus commitment. Um, you know, we're, we're fine if there's, you know, some references that, that point to blind spots, but we want to be able to know what those blind spots are. And, and we hope that the founder also has the, the self-awareness to, to know where those are and, and hire around that. Um, so that's that's a bit about our checklist, but um, it, it's I think it, it really helps us be better decision makers. It helps us be better um, supporting that founder specifically, and and then you know even for our own hygiene, um, it's good for us to evaluate kind of what what we said at the time of the investment, and then look back kind of years to after and see you know how right we were of our first impressions uh, of that founder. That's great. What are your like? non-negotiables that founders need to have even to be considered by Maveron? There's no, there's just like no one archetype that makes, I think, a successful founder. But 
Um, I think for, for me personally, one of our other values is unapologetically non-normal. And I think this very much rings true to kind of what I look for in founders. And, and when I say non-normal, I'm looking for people that see the world a little differently, that see gaps where others can, can see kind of future five, 10 years down the road. Um, and are kind of also like quite comfortable being non-normal. Um, I think there's, and that's why the unapologetic non-normal, I think is an important adjective. You know, I'm looking for people that are obsessive, that, you know, can't, uh, that are going to commit themselves absolutely fully and completely to, to what they're working on. And usually there's some either like a personal pain point or, or a reason why this is such a kind of passion um, or reason kind of why they believe this is their their life work. Third, I'd say an ability to inspire. And this can look in a lot, like this can look very differently from, from person to person. You know, this doesn't necessarily need to be the, the loudest voice in the room, but someone that can inspire, you know, potential future talents, investors, customers. Because I, I do think you need that that person to really be at the helm and give a reason for why people should should care about either working or investing or kind of participating in the product. And then lastly, um, I'd say an acute, acute level of, of self-awareness. I think so much of kind of what dictates the success of a company is is being able to hire the right people and, and without having a good level of, of self-awareness. I think it becomes quite challenging to, to make sure that the right people are around the table. Um, and I also, I think personally find, um, you know, it, it's a little bit easier to have those relationships with founders that are self-aware and, and you're, you're able to kind of bridge that level of trust between founder and investor a bit easier. So those, those are kind of the, the four attributes, but like I said, there's there's no archetype, and and these are just kind of my own personal preferences. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. I want to I want to go a little bit off script on this next question. When you said ability to inspire and attracting talent, you know, I was talking with uh, Matt Hirsch, who's uh, one of who uh, is one of the partners at West Hybrid Marketing Brand Agency, but uh, but they also invest as well. And he was saying how a founder might have been able to attract some of these folks that have come from these incredible backgrounds, like, you know, the Googles and the Facebooks and just these really phenomenal resumes of, uh, of technology companies, but they might not have that experience um, at a startup, not, you know, working with a very small budget in some ways, you know, how do you, how do you kind of, how do you think about that? Yeah. So I, I see as ability to inspire slightly different than ability to recruit and retain great talent. And I think as a founder, you have to have the self-awareness of, am I planning to recruit kind of best in class talent and, you know, they can kind of manage themselves or, do you take the approach of really both retaining and building that talent from within? And I think founders can house both of those different, you know, you could, you could be either and, and they can both be successful. But part of, part of that calculus is having the self-awareness of, am I someone who's really great at kind of selling someone on the vision and getting them through the door? Um, or am I someone who's going to work with someone who's a little bit more scrappy, has a lot of potential, good at identifying that talent and, and growing them from within. I think both work. It just it's a little bit kind of up to the, you know, where the, the founder has more strengths in. I think the 
kind of the the situation that you outline, I think is very, very common where there are amazing employees at, at, at big companies, but their experience is going to be very different when you're working at a small scrappy startup. And so while maybe getting someone who's more experienced or more seasoned or has, you know, some marquee names on, on their resume, they may not always be the best fit for your early, early employees. And, and I think we've, you know, we've seen examples of, you know, uh, people paying up for, for premium talent because of their experience, but in actuality, you know, getting people that, that are ready to hustle and um, might be earlier in their career and growing them from within can be very, very effective at the, at the early stages. Do you, do you also do diligence on early hires as well? So I'd say that the vast majority of our diligence really focuses on the founder. However, we do look at the founding team as a, uh, as a signal of kind of the founder's ability to hire top talent. And we'll, we'll spend time with, with we, we tend to spend time with, you know, non-founder employees to both get a sense of the business, get a sense of the founder's leadership ability, get a sense of why they joined. Um, so we do spend time with them, but the vast majority is, is really focused on, on the founder. Thank you. I want to talk a bit about trends. I know when we were talking before, you mentioned subcultures. Uh, that you're focused on. So what do you mean by subculture? What, what are, uh, and what are some changes in consumer behavior as it relates to s- subculture? So this is a question that, that I love to, to chat about because I spent a lot of time thinking about the intersection of, of subcultures and, and technology. And kind of this, this thinking really started with looking back at some of the most iconic consumer brands. So you can think of, you can think of Nike, you can think of Patagonia, Supremes is kind of a, a more recent example. And each of these brands had a deep, deep loyal subculture when they first began. So Nike, it was track athletes. Patagonia, it was mountain climbers. Supremes was kind of the the skater and streetwear community. And so when I'm looking at at brands today, I'm looking at kind of, is there a subculture that they can capture and attach themselves to? And kind of the, the more kind of observation and work that I've kind of done in this space I see that subculture-led brands tend to be one of the three, one or, or more of the kind of these three. So either one, they're a symbol uh, of that subculture. So you could think of Doc Martin Boots, you can think of Lululemon, you can think of Patagonia in its early days. Being a, if you're wearing or sporting um, these brands, it is a signal that you kind of belong um, and, and admire that, that subculture. Two is a connector. And so connector, you can think of uh, as connecting that subculture and participants in that subculture together. Um, Discord and Twitch are great examples of doing that within the gaming community. Um, And then third is an enabler. So a platform that enables a a participant within that subculture to further their interests uh, or expertise in that space. And I think Pinterest, um, a company that one of our partners, Kat Lee, used to work at, I think is a great example of this within the DIY crafters community and enable them to have inspiration and, and, um, and discover new ways in, in order to craft. And, you know, I think if you're able to be, you know, all three of those, both a symbol, a connector, an enabler, um, which I think frankly Nike has done within athletics, you become synonymous with that subculture. And so I like to kind of use that as a, a lens when I'm, looking at companies and to see, you know, is there, you know, either a subculture that isn't being addressed today? Is this company speaking to a subculture and, and 
can they kind of tap into that cultural movement so they're not paying you know a crazy amount for Instagram and, and Facebook ads and so I'm I don't know I'm excited I think we're in a really interesting time where there's these kind of growing digital tribes that are living online that that still don't have brands that that really represent them and speak to them and so I don't know I'm I'm super bullish I'm kind of this thesis but excited to to find more companies that that fall into this thinking that's really interesting and something we haven't really talked about this show so I appreciate you uh talking about subcultures what are some other verticals in the subculture realm that you're that you're focused on I know you mentioned in the gaming realm Twitch and Discord and you know but I'd love to just kind of hear about what what some of other verticals that maybe are connectors or enablers or 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 symbols uh, that you're that, that you're kind of looking at. So uh, you know, I'll, I'll cheat a little bit and give you one that's within our portfolio that I'm incredibly excited about, um, and that's a company called CoStar. And CoStar is a modern um, astrology app. And for anyone who is remotely interested in astrology, I highly recommend to download it. But I think you know, astrology has been one of these. Um, it's been one of these subcultures that has existed. For thousands of years. It has this built-in language um, that I think also makes it a, a strong subculture. So when I say I'm a Leo, that means something to, to other Leos. And I think what, what CoStar has done kind of really masterfully is, is that there was this kind of deep and fanatical subculture within astrology. But when you looked at kind of the, the products that were out there, they were very dated. Many of them looked like they were built in, you know, Internet Explorer 1997, kind of these cheesy graphics. And CoStar kind of really elevated the experience by, by creating an app that was beautiful, that, that had personality, that enabled you to you know, see what your astrology compatibility was with, with other users on the platform. And I think they've become a, a bit synonymous with astrology. They are both a symbol. Um, people, you'll see people screenshot um, their co-star notifications and posted on on their social media. They're uh, a connector because you can you know see other folks that are on the app, and they are an enabler in the sense that if you are remotely interested within astrology, there's a lot of really rich content that can educate you more about your sign. You know, from a day to month to kind of year uh, years perspective. So uh, that's one that I'm you know particularly excited about, and I think as as you start to observe. Um, Kind of even within retail or other other industries, horoscope is certainly I think having a, a moment right now, and I think it's it's kind of this wonderful way to you know take emotional stock in your life in a very lightweight way that that people I think are, are desperately kind of in, in need of and, and fits a lot of the, the other trends that are going on within society today. Appreciate you bringing up CoStar; they're pretty popular on the on the show. Charles Hudson um, um, also was a also mentioned them and and uh, and talked about them. I know that our precursor is also an investor. I wanted to also talk. We also mentioned that when we were chatting before about future of social applications and and things that you're noticing about Gen Z. I wanted to know. I just wanted to pick your brain about that as well. Super fascinated with Gen Z. I secretly wish I was Gen Z. I think there's so many things that as a generation they're they're doing right. But from a kind of social perspective, I think one, you know, this is a generation that is incredibly creative. They're incredibly comfortable being in front of a camera. 
They see their screens as a canvas, very, very low attention span. And they grew up with celebrities that are very different than the celebrities that millennials or past generations. It's the, you know, YouTube and TikTok star that's filming in their childhood, you know, bedroom versus the glossy red carpet Hollywood stars that um, that millennials and, and beyond kind of grew up with. And so oftentimes in social, it's, it's you know, I think the behavior that, that we're seeing that really resonates with Gen Z is one, platforms that really enable self-expression and creativity, and two, um, platforms that kind of really encourage a sense of like vulnerability and, and authenticity, and authenticity is thrown around a lot, but, you know, this, this can look like shaky camera work or graphics that aren't necessarily polished, like the more unfiltered and almost the better. And, and I think, you know, this is a generation where um, they are kind of rejecting the conformity of, of millennials that we used to, you know, all wear kind of the same logoed polos and the same logos. And, um, and this is a generation where being unique is now really the kind of global cool. Um, and so platforms that encourage kind of that ethos of, of being unique, being yourself, being expressive are, are far more resonating with, with Gen Z today. Yeah, I was also talking with like Rishi Garb and he was saying how, you know, like the photo really has become the chief medium and it's making, it's not music, it's not, it's really just, it's really like the photo and making sure that, you know, wherever you are, you're, you're, you have, it's almost like if, if the picture's not taken, then it, it, it never happened. Totally. And there's even kind of interesting kind of way in the way Instagram is used with millennials versus Gen Z is incredibly different. And, and one example to kind of uh, that relates to your point on photos is you'll see with like teens today, rather than, than having kind of their full um, library of photos dating back, you know, three, four or five years, they'll actually archive most of their photos and only feature, you know, three, four, five, six photos. And those photos are supposed to really represent who they are today, not who they were yesterday or, you know, two years ago. Um, and so there is kind of this like intense focus on present and, and who you are today um, with the acknowledgement that who you are today may be very different than who you are tomorrow. And that's totally okay. And you can kind of clear your, your profile and, and be a new person tomorrow. And I think that that fluency between identity and being able to, you know, be a different person on social media today versus tomorrow is also kind of a, a core component of, of, uh, of Gen Z, which, which has been super fascinating to watch. I think it's really cool and very refreshing, to be honest. Also, I know a trend that's happening is, you know, the, which maybe we haven't uh, talked yet about, but the environmentally conscious and the conscious consumer. I feel like there's also this other macro trend that's happening that, that that's happened over the past few years with fast uh, fast fashion now, to your point about the or um you know what we were talking about with the photo being the you know if you if 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 you didn't take the photo then it never happened and of course you need to be in a new outfit each time you take a photo and but you know fast but you know fast fashion it's clothes the majority of the clothes are 
are are pretty horrendous for the environment overall because they're very they're they're usually pretty cheaply made. So I, I always just kind of think about those two like trends kind of going in opposite to each other. No, I, I think you're totally right. I think there's a, a few things there that that you're touching upon. One, I think we're in a period where there is intense polarization within our country. So polarization of, of income, polarization of political views, um, and that that does often lead to uh, very different consumer segments. And I think too often we are very broad in our statements to say Gen Z, you know, really care about the environment and they're willing to pay a premium for products that, that have a sustainability or an environmental point of view. I just, I think that frankly, that's too broad of a, a statement. And, and personally, while they, I believe, really care that the brands that they um, they spend money on have a point of view and, and take a stand on something it doesn't always necessarily have to be the environment. And, and frankly, many of these brands that, uh, that do have a sustainability or environmental, the, the barrier to, to purchase can be quite high and prohibitive for, for many consumers, particularly teens who, who don't have a lot of disposable income. Um, and so while I think if the preference were, you know, you have two brands exactly the same price, exactly the same kind of quality, and one has an environmental or, or a, a value that they stand by, Gen Z and I think most consumers are going to choose that. The tension that you describe is rather, is rather just a, a reflection of the polarization in our country. And, and you're going to have some consumers that deeply, deeply care. And Gen Z definitely care, I think, and, and have been waving that flag loud and proud. But at the same time, you know, I think many of those brands can be prohibitive from a cost perspective and, and Gen Z, you know, want to have clothing and, and brands that make them feel unique and, and stand for something. And so they may not stand for the environment, but they may stand for something else and, and they care very deeply about that. You know, our stance is the brands that will succeed today and tomorrow have to stand for something. Um you know, I think some of them will, will stand for the environment, some will stand for self-expression, some will stand for mental health, some will stand for, um, for women's rights. I mean, it could be a, a whole, um, there's a whole spectrum of values and, and causes. Um, but I do think the consumer really is looking for brands that do stand for, for something, um, particularly when there's like tremendous amount of choice. Um, and so I, 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 like, I am a believer that, you know, brands that, you know, can break through the noise and, and shape some of our zeitgeist will, will stand for something, but um, it, it's not always the environment. And, and I think, frankly, consumers are also getting much smarter to know, you know, which brands are just greenwashing and, and saying that they're being environmentally friendly, but are not actually practicing that. Um, I think both employees, when they're looking at companies that they want to join, if, um, if they feel like, you know, there's uh, some kind of false advertising of, of how environmentally uh, friendly they are, I think that's also kind of hurting. So um, it's, I think it's a super, super interesting time. And I'm glad that more brands are kind of taking a stand. But um, it's not, um, I don't think it, it, it ends up dictating the success of a company if, if they end up being um, environmentally friendly or, or that being the cause that they stand by. How do you think about brand today? Because um, an insurer charging a premium on brand in terms of the, like measuring the value of brand, because now it seems like in today's landscape, it's it's almost the easiest time ever to launch a brand, right? So there's so much noise as you described and getting past that noise is probably very, very difficult to do. 
just because the low barrier of entry. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. I think it's it's been uh, it's easier than ever to launch a brand. I think it's harder than ever to create a brand that people care about, partially for the things that you you listed. That there, um, one, I think there there's so much choice. Two, there's been a lot of brands that have led with with some values, and then consumers have gotten smarter and um, don't necessarily believe some of those um, those values. Um, and you know, I I think it's it's really really hard right now when there aren't that many social platforms and mediums to advertise. Um, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Google take up the majority of advertising dollars for these brands. Um, there hasn't been a new platform or a new social network where, where people can um, can advertise. And so, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Google are able to place kind of huge, can, can just make it incredibly expensive. And, and I think we are very cognizant of um, brands that are relying on unpaid marketing. And I think more than ever, you know, we're looking for brands that have true, true organic customer love because we we've seen you know the the downfall of becoming reliant on unpaid unpaid advertising and it's it's like a steroid it um it can really enhance growth but can it also be very addictive and and hide true part product market fit totally totally you know i was when i when i spoke with david wu he was saying how he read an article that i think 40 percent of vc dollars go straight just pass through and go straight to Facebook and Google just for online advertising, which is pretty, pretty remarkable. Well, when you're analyzing startups, how are you thinking about growth? Are you like organic growth versus paid growth? You know, I think for the last few years, investors, and this has been very well documented that investors have favored growth over profitability. I think now with some of the recent IPOs, we can see that the tides have changed, that investors even earlier and earlier are looking for, for that path to profitability. And in, in part of that equation is you know, really, really kind of understanding um, how companies are acquiring their customers. And, and for us, we want to see kind of right out of the gates an ability to um, to acquire customers in an organic way. So, you know, 50% plus um, organic growth. We're looking for strong repeat numbers, you know, in the plus 25% in the first three months. We're looking for favorable cocktail TV. But, you know, it, it's, it's an absolute focus area of ours because um, I think when, when the growth of your company, you know, is dictated by, um, paid advertising, you lose a bit, you lose control of your own destiny. And, and, um, and that's just kind of a, a hard position for a company to be in. As you say, it's, it's very, very hard, um, now because of, uh, because really you, you have that duopoly with, with Google and Facebook. So it's really hard to, uh, to stand out. So Natalie, what is one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? I find this to be a very tough question. One, because I actually really love the industry. Like I've met a lot of um, wonderful people. So um, I, I'm cheating on this answer because they're, they're mostly jokes. But um, I have loved all the parody finance accounts. I would have way more of that. I think we need more humor in this industry. Um, I think we need way more coffee shops in South Park. We have two of them and they are 
always crowded and you run into folks. And those would be right now my, my two things that I would change. You know, I think on a, on a more serious note, all the initiatives around diversity within the within uh, investing teams, within founders, within boardrooms is very near and dear to, to my heart. And I, uh, I feel super, super fortunate that I have a, a really strong community of, of female investors that have helped me every single step of the way from getting into venture to mentorship to, um, to everything. And so um, that is uh, an area that is improving within venture. And, and I am f- excited to kind of continue to see the, those improvements. But I think from um, particularly from a consumer perspective, where so much of consumer spend is really um, dictated by, by women, um, it's important to have more, more women who are you know, investors, but particularly, I think, in consumer where they can understand that psychographic just a little bit more naturally than than some of their male peers. Yeah, that's what Susan Lyons said as well. More women in venture, um, especially on the consumer side. And, and I really appreciate your uh, you uh, shouting out all the uh, the Twitter. VC Brags, I think, is one of the best accounts. It's so good. It's so good. It's great. It's great. What is your most recent investment and what makes you excited about it? Yeah, so my most recent investment is this company called Otis. Very excited about it. Um, And Otis democratizes access to cultural assets. So um, sneakers, art, collectibles, um, and they do that by fractionalizing ownership in each of these assets. So um, starting at $25 per share, you can purchase, you know, a piece of a Murakami or Supremes um, or uh, a Hindi Wiley painting. And, you know, the, the vision of the company is for this to become similar to the NASDAQ and, you know, art for, for so, so long and continues to be really just reserved for, for the 1%. And as, you know, there's kind of all these artists that have kind of come to market in the last few years that frankly, kind of the fans that popularize those artists are no longer are priced out and no longer able to participate in that that wealth creation and value creation of that artist. And so Otis is trying to democratize that, allowing anybody to invest in the the art market and and particularly kind of has a um, has been curating talent and, and artists uh, that kind of fall into the kind of hype beast or culturally minded uh, consumer. And so they've just had a kind of a few drops this uh, in the last few months. Um, they're just they're a really fantastic team. The founder Michael had previously started Skillshare, and he's uh, he just kind of sits perfectly at the intersection of product design and culture. Has been able to bring some phenomenal people on board, and and we're just really excited to. Uh, to be part of his company. I think I think Jason also uh, also spoke about them as well, and really innovative company. Just having that fractal ownership of uh, of art. What is one book that impacted you personally, and one book that impacted you professionally? The book that I think has impacted me most uh, professionally has been Shoe Dog, and, and a lot of um, a lot of Shoe Dog is kind of about grit and adversity and and um and kind of a founder's ability to have go through all these challenges and come out on top and um i was just really struck by the level of um vulnerability and self-awareness and, and grit um that that phil knight had and i think it's something that i look for a lot now in, in founders when i'm looking for those for those founders that can be the leaders of, of cultural movements 
Um, when it comes to uh, books that have impacted me personally, it's a bit of recency bias, but um, just finished up Why We Sleep by Matt Walker. Um, and I am totally bought into sleep being incredibly crucial and critical. I am a sleep enthusiast, um, totally believe in it. I think everyone should read the book um, and has really changed the way that, that I prioritize my time and, and prioritize sleep. In my opinion, it's great to just hear, you know, get some aggregation on what, you know, what all the what investors are are really uh, valuing in terms of books so this is just, that's great what's one piece of advice for b2c founders paid acquisition can be a self-enhancing drug and to be very very careful it can be addictive um and i think frankly sometimes it really hides product market fit and so while it may be very attractive to initially grow you know your top line users um I think it, it can sometimes come at uh, a cost in the long term, particularly in the brand and the quality of users and customers that you're getting in. Um, and so my advice would be to be incredibly, incredibly careful and prudent with, with paid advertising. And, um, you know, in the beginning, really just listen to your customers, listen to your customers that are really loyal and, and love the product and, and build around that loyal and obsessive uh cult following and 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 build from there because um paid marketing can can be a dangerous roller coaster to to stay on it's that's really great advice kind of looking at good growth versus bad growth right and really identifying the actual performance of your company well natalie this has been an absolute pleasure thanks so much for coming on the show oh thank you it was such a pleasure to be on it and and thank you again for for having me and there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Natalie. I really appreciate her taking the time and sharing such incredible insights about her areas of focus in consumer. You can follow Natalie on Twitter at NTDillon. If you're a founder and working on something innovative, have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks. And please stay safe.